We are in Matthew chapter 16, and um, Matthew chapter 16, my initial goal was to cover verses 21 through 28, and uh, I presented that goal to God, and He said, you know what, I, I, you can have your goals, but you're going to do what I, what I want you to do. So uh, we're going to cover three verses. Um, and uh, it's just so much rich stuff. Let me pray for us real quick before we begin, and then we will get started. Father, we come to you asking um, that as you have inspired this word, as you have led the men who wrote this passage, the men who experienced this passage, Father, that your Spirit would help us experience it now, that your Spirit would speak to us, that he would help us understand uh, Father, that our minds would be open, that our eyes would, would, uh, would, would be open as well, that our hearts would be receptive, O oh Lord, to your word. Uh, implant your truth in our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So Matthew 16, we're going to look at verses 21 through 23. I'm going to give you a, a second or two to open your Bible. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to keep your Bible open. I'm going to encourage you to be looking at your Bible a lot more than you look at me. Uh, there's not a whole lot to look at up here. There's a, <laughs> amen. Someone said amen uh, loudly, but stare at the word and um, and we'll begin. So this is Matthew 16, starting at verse 21. Let me read these verses, and um, we'll go from there. It says from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, we're we're quickly approaching the very last weeks, the very last instances of of Jesus' life. Um, There's this crescendo now beginning to to be built in the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew. And this is is amplified, or it's it's made more clear to us by how verse 21 begins. Um, I looked at most common translations that people use, ESV, NIV, King James, NASB, whatever they are, and all of them begin the same exact way on verse 21, from that time. So that's a key uh, moment, uh, key thing for us to look at. Pay close attention to those little phrases when you're reading the Bible. Earlier in chapter 16, what we heard about last week, we're told that Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. This is an area north of the Sea of Galilee, a territory of about uh, 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And this is an interesting region uh, in in Judea. Uh, At one time, it has a long history of pagan worship. Uh, at one time, this was an area where there was a, 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 an altar, one of the key centers of worship for uh, the Old Testament god, Baal. Y'all heard of that guy. Uh, at one time, Baal was worshipped there. Uh, and during the Greek time, uh, they had set up an altar for the Greek god Pan. And specifically during the time of Jesus and into the Roman Empire, this actually became a center of worship for the emperor himself, for Caesar. So... Interestingly enough, Jesus chooses to take his disciples 
uh, and himself into this area while this text is being written. And he does this as a sort of, of kind of a spiritual retreat, as it were. He's beginning to prepare to launch the last segment of his ministry. And, and he basically pulls his disciples and himself away from the demands of the large crowds. Earlier, uh, two, three chapters before chapter 16, uh, there's a lot of miracles that Jesus had been performing around large crowds. So you can imagine the, just the, 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 the exhausting nature of, of public ministry when you're surrounded by thousands of people. And in addition to, be, to pulling himself away from from the burden of that, you know, there's also kind of this band of misfits that follows him around called the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes that just constantly are just against Jesus and he's constantly having to engage with them. So this specific text, this specific part of scripture, Jesus secludes himself into this pagan territory to prepare for the final chapter of his ministry on earth. And, 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 and in a way, one of the preparations, one of the shifts that happen is uh, Jesus' ministry, while it'll continue to be public, miracles will continue to be made in terms of a lot of people seeing them, Jesus is now going to begin to focus his ministry in the, to the private teaching towards his disciples. So from this point on in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will begin to really spend a whole lot more time specifically engaging his disciples about um, one very specific element. And you go back to verse 21, and he tells us what this element is. Look at verse 21 again. The text says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I'm not entirely 100% sure that this is the first time that Jesus has spoken this specific about his plans uh, to die on a cross. Um, Earlier in Matthew 12, he hints at some of this, um, y'all recall the story, uh, the Sadducees come to Jesus and say, uh, hey, show us a sign. You know, if you really are who you say you are, show us a sign. And Jesus tells them, uh, a crooked and a wicked generation asks for signs. I'm not going to give you any signs except for one. And he tells them the, son of, the, the sign of Jonah. And scripture says that just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. So, Jesus had taught about his death, but, but a lot of it was metaphoric, a lot of it was very symbolic, a lot of it was, was veiled, but from this point on, it, it, all that veil begins to be removed, and he begins to provide details to his disciples about exactly how he will die. He says, suffer many things, just very detailed expressions of what his ministry will look like. Um... And that's important for us to consider because this is going to be the emphasis of his teaching for his disciples and an extension for us. And and the interesting thing about this is he he reiterates this again and again in in the following chapters. If you look at chapter 17, if you look at chapter 20, if you look at chapter 21, if you look at chapter 26... Jesus continually brings about this detailed teaching about his death by crucifixion and the following resurrection. Now, when I, when I read through this, um, I, I asked a question. Why would he need to do that? 
Why would he need to teach his disciples continually, repetitively, that he was going to die in this very specific way? I mean, they just, they just have like really bad memories, you know? Just, they, they, they not keep good notes, and, and uh, maybe their iPhones didn't work, had no reminders or notifications. Um, what was it that, that, that placed Jesus in this position to constantly be teaching them about his death? Well, we see a little bit of a hint in, um, earlier in the passage in verse 16. This is what Andy talked to you guys about, and th- this entire narrative is connected. So I'm going to just quickly go back to some of the elements in the previous uh, uh, segment. In verse 16, you guys will remember that Peter makes this statement. When Jesus looks at him and says, who do you say I am? Peter makes this statement, you are the Christ. Now, look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. So everyone look at verse 20 of chapter 16 and read that to yourself. So after this massive revelation that receives uh, 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 just you know a hurrah by Jesus, look at what he tells his disciples to do. He says, "Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one." So Jesus, his identity as a Messiah, finally has been considered, finally has been acknowledged, and, and his disciples are now aware of this. Peter's now aware of this that he's the Messiah. And Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone. Why does he do that? Why do you think he does that? Why do you think he secludes them into this area of pagan worship, away from the crowds, away from the, te- the, 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 the constant antagonism of the scribes and the religious leaders of the time? And, and why is he so hush-hush? Shh, don't tell anyone I'm the, I'm, I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. Well, maybe it would help us to just quickly review what that term means. You've heard the word Messiah. In this passage, you see the word Christ. My name is Ronald Laitano. Our senior pastor's name is Keith Collins. The quarterback for the New Orleans Saints' name is Drew Brees. Jesus Christ is not Jesus' name. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. So my name is Ronald Laitano, but some of you lovely folks every now and then will call me Pastor Ronald. Pastor is not my name. Pastor is, is a title in a sense. So Jesus Christ. Christ is a title. And whenever you read the, the New Testament, you'll encounter this word in two forms. The word Christ and the word Messiah. They're different words, but they're actually the same word in a different language. They have the same meaning. Christ is the Greek version of the word Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew version of the word Christ. They basically mean the same thing. What does this word mean? It means anointed. Specifically in this context, it means anointed by God for the purposes of God. I'll elaborate that some more, but hold on to that thought. So my question, going back to my original question, from this point on, why would Jesus need to repeatedly tell them that he's going to die by crucifixion? Why would he have to continually bring this back up? I mean, was once not enough? When you hear really bad news, when you hear something described to you in really graphic terms, one time is enough, right? You kind of remember after that one time. Why does he have to repeat it? 
time and time and time again to them. And then, why does he tell them to not tell anyone that he's the Messiah? Do you think these two things are related to one another? The reason for this has to do with what people expected of the Messiah. Of whomever the people thought the Messiah would be. Whomever this guy was, when the Messiah showed up, there was baggage attached to the idea of the Messiah. Um, You have to remember in the biblical context, the Messiah is the anointed king through whom God establishes his rule over the world. I'll say that again. In the biblical context, the, the, the concept of Messiah, the idea behind a Messiah is an anointed king, a chosen king, a, a person who's set aside by God to establish God's kingdom, God's rule over the earth. So, if, the, if this is true, for Israel... This kingly hopes was specifically related to a coming king. A guy that would follow the lineage of David. And as we read earlier in the book of Matthew, when the birth of Christ is prophesied, Christ is told to be sitting on whose throne? Uh, On God's throne, but specifically on, on David's throne. So, when, 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 when this notion of Messiah, when the disciples hear Messiah, when, 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 when they've now identified that Jesus is Messiah, and Jesus has told them, I am Messiah, their minds are beginning to turn. They're beginning to think that this guy is somebody. They're beginning to, 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 to bring to mind pictures of, of kingdom, pictures of, of a king, pictures of an army, Pictures of war, pictures of bloodshed, pictures of of overtaking the Roman Empire, right? Because they need a king, they need a Messiah, God's anointed to release them from the bondage of the current empire. They're beginning to think of the establishment of an earthly kingdom, If the disciples had gone out proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, both they and their hearers would have thought of a glorious, conquering Messiah. Think about that. If the disciples would have started blabbing their mouth to everyone and saying, we have found the Messiah, the people around them, the Jewish people around them, would have been stirred up into this frenzy and would have seen in Jesus, would have placed the expectation of Jesus, here comes this conquering king. Here comes this victorious warrior. So this message about having to go to Jerusalem and dying and suffering, these two things are at odds, are they not? The disciples knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But Jesus tells them not to tell anyone because Jesus knew something. He knew, they knew he was the Messiah. But Jesus also knew they didn't really know what that meant. It's incredibly important to get this right. 
not just for the sake of this text, but for the sake of our lives. It's important that they understand what it means for, be, for Jesus to be the Messiah. And as we're about to see in the next couple of verses, they don't know what it means. Do you know what that means? Sometimes we call Jesus names. Sometimes we place names or titles on Jesus. Sometimes we'll say something like, Jesus is Lord. Do you know what that means? Sometimes we'll say, Jesus is my Savior. Do you know what that means? It's one thing to recognize the Messiah's identity. That's who He is. It's another to know His true purpose and plan. And the truth of the matter is, just knowing who the Messiah is, is not enough. Just being able to point Him out in the crowd, oh, there He is. That's, that's the Messiah, that's Jesus, that's Lord, that's Savior right over there. Factually knowing His identity is not enough. This is an incredible lesson about spiritual blindness. Think about this. This is fascinating to me. These guys, the disciples, Peter, they literally have the perfect Sunday school teacher. He's literally perfect. This is the Son of God. This is who's been teaching them for the past three years of his ministry. This is the person whom they've sat under daily. This is the person who they've read scripture with. This is the person who, who's interpreted scripture for them. And somehow, as we're about to see, they still miss his purpose and his plan. They understand factual statements about Jesus. He's the Messiah. They get that. They've actually even increased in, in the theological awareness. So, so now they've added a word they didn't know. Messiah. Oh, okay. I've, I've achieved another status in my, in, in my knowledge. I've, I know now more about Jesus. But they still can't see Jesus for who he really is. Why is that? Why are they blind to the purpose and plan of Jesus? I think it's because they see Jesus for who they want Jesus to be. They want a Messiah. They want a Messiah. They want a Savior. But they want what they want. They want a Messiah according to their wishes. They want their Messiah. They want their Savior. They're looking for this personality to be subservient to their wishes. They want freedom from Roman oppression, so they see Jesus as their liberator. They want to be released from the surrounding political powers, so they see Jesus as their conquering military king. They want security for their future as a nation, so they see Jesus as the leader of an earthly kingdom. They want their Messiah. And they're leaving out something, something incredibly important. That Messiah has his own plan. 
That Messiah has his own purpose. That as we're about to see, is very different than what theirs wants to be. Now, these things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. I mean, for them to want freedom from Roman oppression, for them to want security for their future as a nation, I mean, after all, they're the people of Israel. I mean, there's, there's nothing inherently bad in these things. Nevertheless, these things are a shadow of Jesus' true identity. And they certainly don't come close to representing Jesus' true plan. They're more interested in the personality that is Jesus rather than in the divine person that he is. They get facts about Jesus correct. I mean, it's true. Jesus has come to liberate, right? Jesus has come to set the slave free, right? These are all true things. Jesus has come to set his kingdom and rule, right? But this is where they miss it. This is where they miss it. These realities have their true and full expression in the heavenly kingdom of God. Not in the temporary earthly realm. The gospel of Matthew has this emphasis on the ushering of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. And this is what they have missed out. That, th- that reality, that, 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 that truth has its full expression in the heavenly kingdom of God. And the plan of God set forth to bring about his heavenly kingdom to earth, this is the most important thing. The plan God set forth to bring about his heavenly kingdom to earth begins at the cross. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the kingdom of God is ushered in. This is its doorway. This is how the kingdom of God breaks into the earthly realm. Through the death, burial, and resurrection. So, their kingdom expectations for Messiah, of earthly power and earthly liberation and earthly success and earthly victory, does that not begin to look really different from God's kingdom and God's means and God's purposes? They might have started really close, Might have even used some of the same language. But as the ideas developed, they were divergent. So why is this important? Talk to you about Messiah, talk to you about the kingdom of God, talk to you a little bit about their cultural context. This is important because we tend to do the same thing that the disciples did. When you see the disciples in the New Testament, you're gazing into a mirror. You're seeing yourself. At least I do. You might be better than me, but I, I'm just, I look at them and I don't, I don't scoff at Peter. Oh, look out, Peter. Look at, I go, ugh, that's me. That's, that's me. That's, that's what I would have done. That's what I do. We tend to collect facts about Jesus, but we view those facts through the lens of our desires. And those facts about Jesus, those things that we know to be true, about Jesus are only true if our desires are fulfilled. So, many of us learned this song when we were little kids. Jesus loves me, this I know. That's true, right? But, it's only true if things in life are going well. Have you ever found yourself singing that song when things are going really bad? Jesus is my provider, right? 
That's a true statement. We, we believe that Jesus provides, supplies our needs. But sometimes we live as if that's true only when I'm not in need. When I have nothing, that, when there's nothing lacking, then Jesus is my provider. Jesus is the anchor of my life. That's a truth statement. That is true. But sometimes we live in such a way that the truth of that statement is only true when we're not facing the storms of life. So these truths are subservient. These truths depend on our desires being met. The moment we want something, the moment our desires are not met, the things we call true are not true. So like the disciples, our tendency is to fashion a Jesus that exists to help us fulfill our desires. And whenever we do this, we have made Jesus just a means to obtain spiritual blessings. I'll say that again. When we do this, we make Jesus just a means to achieve spiritual blessing. So he's, he's, he's like a ladder to get to heaven. Not only do we undermine the glory of God, but we reduce the message of Jesus to nothing more than a Christian version of fortune cookies. You know, shallow sayings leading to a spiritually vain expectation for life. We know Jesus loves us. We know Jesus provides for us. We know Jesus is the anchor of our lives. We know those things to be true. But do we know his plans? Do we know him through his plans? And, and as I study this week, and as, as God just illuminated some of this text for me this week, that, that was a lesson I had not seen there before. Do you know Jesus, or do you know about Jesus? Peter knew something about Jesus in that moment, when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But that he know Jesus' plan, that he know the supremacy of Jesus' purpose, do you see Jesus as the reward of your faith? Or do you see Jesus as a means to be rewarded for your faith? I'll ask that again. Do you see Jesus as the reward of your faith? He is the ultimate pleasure of your existence. Or do you see Jesus as a way to get an ultimate pleasure? This is all in the context of their expectation for a Messiah, right? They see Jesus, and they're looking through him to something else. They're like, okay, this guy is going to get us over here. When Jesus is saying, no, 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 after me, there's nothing else. Like, I'm the end. I'm the goal. I'm your destiny. You've arrived when you get to me. And... To them, it's, it's almost like this, this, this you know, silhouette, this, this thing they have to go through when Jesus wants them to go in, not through him. Do you think of Jesus' death and resurrection as the greatest manifestation of God's glory? Or do you see Jesus' death and resurrection as a stepping stone for greater spiritual growth? Let me ask it this way. Let me ask it how the passage asks everything I've talked about. 
Are you setting your mind on the things of God or are you setting your mind on the things of man? Look at verse 23. Is that not what he tells Peter? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. One of the greatest lessons this passage teaches us is it is possible to be friendly to Jesus, but to be his foe. It is possible to be friendly to Jesus, but to be his foe. Look at verse 22 again. Verse 22 says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter is not intentionally doing something wrong here. He's not trying to harm Jesus. He's, he's, he's not intentionally trying to, to, to blow things up. He, he's actually showing care for Jesus. Jesus just told them, guys, I have to go to Jerusalem. Why would that freak them out? Because the religious leaders, the people in power, hate this guy. So, no bueno. He says, I have to suffer. So, so, some translations say, it is necessary for me to suffer. They're hearing this from him. Wait a minute, he has to go to enemy camp, and he has to go suffer, and then he's going to get killed. So what, what would your reaction be when the most important person in the world, in your life, the guy who has transformed your existence, comes and tells you that? What would you do? Go ahead, Jesus, right behind you. No, right? You would do exactly what Peter does. No, Jesus, don't do that. He's actually trying to show care for him. He pulls him aside. Maybe he whispers for him to him. And he says, far be it from you, Lord. So some translations render that as God forbid or may God be merciful to you. He's actually showing concern. So he's being friendly to Jesus. In other words, Peter has good intentions behind his desire to not see Jesus die on a cross. Now, why is that a problem? Why would that be a problem? Because if Jesus listened to Peter, his good intentions could lead him to betray God's ultimate plan of salvation and the atoning of sins for humanity. That's pretty serious, is it not? So how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 23. He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The way the text is, is, is written, I get the sense that you know, Peter's not done talking. And Jesus has his back to Peter. Peter probably comes, comes over his shoulder and starts whispering these things. And, and the, way, the way this reads to me, Jesus just kind of turns back and, and unleashes hell, in some sense, on Peter. 
Now, what does that mean when he calls him Satan? D- does, does that mean that, that he was, Peter was possessed by Satan? I, you know, I don't think so. I don't think that's what that means. Um, I'll tell you what, what I think is happening here. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. You'll recall what's happening in Matthew chapter 4. The Holy Spirit has led Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted by a bad dude who we know as Satan. And you will recall that there are three specific temptations that Jesus is is, um, offered or, or, or tempted by. And I find it interesting, go back to, uh, um, after we're done, go back to the book of Luke and read Luke's account of the temptation. You'll notice that the order of things is not the same. That's not a coincidence. Matthew wants to emphasize something about where he places those temptations. And this is the last of the three temptations that Matthew records, verse 8. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him What did he show him? All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Sound familiar? For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What's interesting about that passage is Satan offers Jesus not just an earthly kingdom, but all the kingdoms of the earth. Satan offers him reign. He offers him victory. Glorious victory over the kingdoms of the world. So my question for you guys is this. Would that not have fulfilled the deepest messianic expectations of the Israelites to know that this man would have ruled the world. In order for Jesus to have given to Satan's offer, what would he have to do? Bow to Satan, ultimately. But essentially... What would Jesus have had to do? He would have had to forfeit suffering. He would have had to forfeit going to Jerusalem. He would have had to forfeit dying on a cross. So, by giving in to Satan's offer, he would have abandoned God's plan of salvation. By following Peter's Request or Peter's rebuke, he would have abandoned God's plan for salvation. That's what I think is happening here. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 23. So go back to Matthew 16 and look at verse 23. Look at how Jesus responds. This is why I think that's the explanation for this. He says, you are a hindrance to me. What does the word hindrance mean? An impediment. An obstacle, right? Something that keeps you from getting somewhere. This word can be translated into a stumbling block, a stumbling stone. So, 
what would he be impeded from? What, what, what would that obstacle keep Jesus from? Jesus is essentially telling him, Peter, do not keep me, do, do not keep me from doing fill in the blank. God's plan. It's interesting, uh, one of the more, 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 more specific meanings of this word hindrance is, um, is kind of like a hunting trap. So it's a trap, it's a snare. What, what do we know about snares? What do, what do we know about traps? Can you see traps? Are, is, is a trap right there? No. Because if it were right there, I could see it, right? Tra- traps are hidden. Traps are not meant to be seen. They inflict their damage under the cover of camouflage. So Peter has good intentions. But unbeknownst to him, hidden from him or to him, he is asking Jesus to consider abandoning God's plan of salvation. And to think, to think that just a few verses earlier, in the segment that we looked at last week, Jesus tells Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And here he tells that same guy, get away from me, Satan. How painfully ironic is that? One moment you are being referred to as an instrument for the plans of God, and the next moment you become the chief antagonist to God's plan. That's why Jesus is so forceful. So what are we meant to learn from that? I mean, great. We know that now, but the truth of the matter is, we weren't there, right? I mean, we weren't Peter in the sense that we're not the ones, like, I haven't told Jesus, Jesus, stop, stop doing what God, you know, we haven't done something like Peter had done. So there's a lesson for us in here, but what is it? I love how this passage ends. In his kindness... Our Lord and Savior not only rebukes Peter, but he corrects him. He patiently corrects Peter. This is what's so fascinating. Peter is unaware how catastrophic his advice is. Jesus knows how utterly catastrophic his advice is. Jesus responds with a harsh rebuke, but then extends his kind hand. And he patiently corrects him. Here's the lesson that we learn at the end of this verse. The last thing Jesus tells Peter here is, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Can you almost hear a tone change? Get away from me, Satan! For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of earth. Now, here's a question I asked myself when I was studying this. What is the difference between the, I'm calling the Peter of verse 16. Look at verse 16 of chapter 16. What, what's the difference between that Peter and the Peter of verse 22? Same guy responding to the same Messiah in different ways. One gets a commendation, 
The other one gets a backhand, a verbal backhand. What's the difference between both of them? Verse 16 says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Here's the key. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Hold that thought. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 22. Peter rebukes him. Far be it from you, Lord. Verse 23. He turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what's the difference? What's the difference between Peter, verse 16, Peter, verse 22? The difference is, God reveals something to Peter in verse 16, and God does not reveal something to Peter in verse 22. In verse 16, Peter has his mind set on heaven, on the things of heaven. He is illumined by God's spiritual inspiration. In verse 22, he is not. In verse 22, he is thinking as just a normal man. He is having... His mind on the things of man. So what does that mean for us? How do we apply that to our lives? If you have Peter, this this one of three quote-unquote super apostles that wound up leading the early church, this man who in Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4 begins to preach and just people start coming to Christ in droves. If he can be led to offer such catastrophic advice that would literally make him the chief antagonist of God's plan when he is thinking of just the things of man. How much more do we need the Holy Spirit to lead us in our day to day? The lesson we learn is when we operate under the influence of the Holy Spirit, when we think spiritual things, when we're reading the Bible, when we're praying, when we're seeking God's guidance, our minds are turned to the things of God. But when we fail to do these things, our minds are naturally set on the things of man. And the consequences to that are severe. So severe, in fact, that you might find yourself opposing God's plan while thinking you're even being friendly to Him. Let me pray for us. Father, how desperately we need Your Spirit to guide not just some of our thoughts, to lead not just some of our inclinations but to permanently fix our gaze on Christ who is in heaven. We need your spirit, Father. We need to be led to think of things that are above. The apostle told us in Colossians 3, set your mind on things that are above where Christ is seated. Father, so help us through this lesson. Help us through this example of this apostle who in good intentions offered catastrophic advice. Father, how how good our intentions can sometimes be for our own lives. 
how good our thoughts and our advice for our own lives and maybe for the lives of our brothers and sisters could be. We might be good intended towards them, O Lord, but unbeknownst to us, we might be sending them to ruin. So Father, help us. This is what you've taught us this morning, that we need your spirit in us, working through us, leading us to you and your plan for our lives. Prepare us now, Father. Guard us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.